If you brought your Bibles with you, open up to the book of Joshua. We're going to spend some time there this morning. We'll look at a couple other places. We've been in a study of the book of Joshua for the past several weeks. We'll be wrapping it up. We have not gone chronologically through that book. Rather, we've been taking some random stories and looking at them in no particular order. And either this week or next week, we will wrap up our study of the book of Joshua. But today, today I want you to see a couple of things that, like I said in the prayer, touch us right where we live. There are at least two different times in Joshua's book where Joshua instructs the Hebrew people, the Jews, to renew their covenant with God. I want you to see both of them this morning. The first comes after a very dark period in their history. They had experienced a military loss, the city of Ai. They shouldn't have lost. Strategically, militarily, they should not have lost. They lost because of sin, the sin of one man. His name was Achan. Achan had mishandled the devoted things of God. We looked at his story just a few weeks ago, and we looked at the subsequent defeat of the Jewish people as we were going through that story. I want you to see now what happened on the backside of it. After God called out Achan's sin and dealt with it, Joshua did something very unique. This is in the 8th chapter, starting in the 30th verse. At that time, right after the fall of Ai, at that time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native born with their elders and officers, And their judges stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. What a fitting thing for Joshua to do. After this very dark period, after sin had ravaged the camp, what a beautiful, wonderful thing for him to gather together all of the people and renew their covenant with God. Now, what we're reading about actually happened in the book of Deuteronomy as well as now in the book of Joshua. This is not the first time this had happened. Before Moses had died, he brought all of the Hebrew people together. He separated them half on one side, half on the other, half with their backs to Mount Gerizim, half with their backs to Mount Ebal. And he told them what would happen if they did not serve the Lord fully. He talked about the curses that would fall on them. But he also talked about the blessings that would fall on them. You can go to the book of Deuteronomy and read it for yourself. At the end of it, Moses said, choose the blessings. That's Phil's paraphrase. In essence, he was saying to them, you choose a right relationship with God that you might live in the blessings. Don't choose your own path because the curses of God will fall on you. 
That's exactly what they experienced at Ai. Moses, in all of his God-given wisdom, said, we need to be reminded of this. We need to renew our covenant. And that's exactly what happened. He set it up in such a way that they would remember the stories that their ancestors had told them. They would remember what Joshua and Caleb had said about how Moses had handled this. They would be reminded of the covenant and they would renew it. That's a powerful moment in their history because they're about to take the land. They're going to move on from their defeat into victory and it required a renewed covenant. Through the years, I have known a lot of people that have stood at that exact same spot. Now, I don't mean geographically, I mean spiritually. They've gone through very dark times and they have found themselves at a place where they needed to renew the covenant. The problem is they didn't feel like God's grace was deep enough for them. They didn't feel like they could renew a covenant in such a way that God would actually forgive them of their sin. They didn't feel like God's love could be extended to them in those moments. That happens more often than you might imagine. It may well have happened in your life where you have gone through a period of spiritual darkness and you have wanted nothing more than to reestablish your relationship with the Lord, but you didn't think it possible. More often than not, what most people expect is an Old Testament judgment from God, like what fell on the Hebrew people at Ai. They expect condemnation and death. They do not expect that grace is deep enough to cover their sin. So they walk away. They stay in a broken relationship with no covenant renewal coming. They choose to stay in their sin. Every time that happens, when I have opportunity to visit with those folks, I find myself wanting to take them to two places in the Gospels that they might understand New Testament grace over Old Testament judgment, that they might understand what God has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. I long for more than anything for them to see these passages and take them to heart. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Keep your finger in the book of Joshua, but let's go to the New Testament book of Luke. Luke chapter 11, or actually Luke chapter 15. Don't know where I came up with 11. Well, yes, I do. We're going to start in verse 11. I'm a little cloudy. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. This is a popular story. It's been preached repeatedly. The reason that it is so popular is it has a lot to teach. There are many dimensions in this story, and you could spend time in each one of those dimensions. We don't have enough time to do that today, so we're just going to pull out a couple of high points from this. This is Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, meaning Jesus, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was hungry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now, like I said, there are multiple dimensions in this story, at least three that jump off the page. There's the dimension of the prodigal son, the dimension of the older brother, and then the dimension of the father. Each one of those bears its own exploration. And like I've already said, we don't have enough time to get into that today. So let's just pull a couple of other things out of this story and take a quick look at them. When this younger son decided that he wanted to choose his own path, He knew that he would be doing some things that were very displeasing to his father. His dad was not going to bless his decisions, but his dad did give him the freedom to go and make those decisions, and make them he did. He went to a very unique place. Did you catch it in verse 13? This is a very unique thing in Scripture. I want you to see it for yourself. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. It has always been interesting to me that the Bible does not tell us where this man went. All it says is that he went into a far country. Now, there are a lot of places in Scripture that call out geography for us. They'll give us names of places on a map that mean nothing to us. But in this particular story, there's no geography called out. It simply remains a far country. Now, why would the Bible do that? Why would God leave that detail out in this particular story? All we can do is speculate on that, but here's Phil's speculation. I believe that the Bible calls this out as a far country so that its application will be vast. If all we knew was that he went off to a place, call it Gilgal, he went off to Gilgal, we would say, well, that doesn't have any meaning for me. But when the Bible says that he went off into a far country, it leaves all kinds of application available to every one of us. A far country is a place outside, we believe, of our Father's sight. It's a place where we can go and hide. It's a place where we can make decisions that won't impact anybody else. A far country is a place where we are living solely the way we want to live with no regard whatsoever for the consequences as they might touch other people. That's what happens when we go to a far country. 
Some of you have spent time in far countries. You have gone places that you knew your father would not approve of, your heavenly father. You have gone places where you knew you would be making decisions that would have vast consequences on the lives of those that you love, but you didn't care. So you went there. You lived, in essence, prodigally. That's what happens when we go to the far country. We are living as prodigal children, sons and daughters, making our own choices, going our own way, doing the things that we want to do with no regard for anybody else, no concern at all. That's what it means to live prodigally. You have broken covenant with everybody that matters to you. Some of you know what that's like. I would venture that most everyone here knows what that's like. Even if it was just for a brief moment that you were in the far country and sin took you there, you know what it's like to be there. Well, there's this other really interesting thing that comes off the page as we read this story. This one we find in verse 17. Take a look at this. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I love the way Scripture calls this out. But when he came to himself, verse 17 says. Some translations of the Bible say, when he came to his senses. He was living in the far country. He was ravaging his inheritance. He was hurting his father's heart. He was leaving his dad standing on the road day after day after day, waiting for him to come back. When he came to himself and recognized his condition, he saw some things. First and foremost, he saw the pigs all around him. He was in the pig pen, longing to eat their food. My friends, we would call that rock bottom. He was living with the pigs. He was eating what pigs eat. He was hoping for a little extra slop that day. That's rock bottom. If you've ever been there, you know what it looks like. You know what it smells like. And then he came to himself, and he recognized that he could go home and live as a servant in his father's house and be better off than he was in the pig pen at rock bottom. So he left, and he went home, and he found a restored relationship with his dad. And you heard the whole story. You've heard it many times. His father puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger and he kills the fatted calf and they have a huge celebration because his son that was dead is actually alive and he's come home and it's this beautiful story of hope and reconciliation and renewal. But do you know what it is void of? It is void of emotional decisions on behalf of this son. He made an intellectual decision to go home because he was at the lowest point anybody could ever be living with the pigs. He didn't burst into tears. He didn't start wailing and whining and crying. He made an intellectual decision to go home because he came to himself and in his mind things clicked the way they should and he went to where he could be safe. Renewed a covenant with his father. It's a very subtle implication of the whole story. They had a restored relationship. There are people that will read that when they are in the far country. They'll look around and see nothing but pigs and slop all around them. And the smell will be overwhelming. And they'll ask this question. 
And you've got to trust me on this if you have never sat with anybody asking questions like this. And maybe you have. Maybe it was your own prodigal son. Maybe you were the prodigal child asking the question. Whatever it might be, people will always ask this question. Is it really possible? Can I really go home? How would I do that? What would it look like? And that's where I want to take him to the second stop in the Gospels. This time in the Gospel of John. Turn over there with me, would you? John chapter 10. One verse, verse 10. Jesus' words. Speaking of Satan, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But then speaking of himself, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now pick that apart real quick. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. What Jesus is saying is that Satan has come that he might steal, kill, and destroy your relationship with God because he doesn't want you to have it. He doesn't have it. He doesn't want you to have it. So he'll try to steal it from you. He'll try to kill the relationship. He'll try to destroy it. He's called the destroyer in the New Testament. And he's very good at what he does. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Interestingly enough, if we really want to understand the depth of Jesus' statement, we have to pull one word out and explore it. That word is life. There are two different words in the Greek language that are used for life, and they both apply in this passage. Let me show you how. I'm going to do some teaching, and you're going to have to hang with me through this, and hopefully when we get through it, it'll all make sense. I wrote it with a kidney stone this week, so hopefully it'll all make sense. Here's the first word. This is the first word in the Greek language used for life, and it is used multiple times in the New Testament. It is the word bios. That is the root word for biology. It deals with the physical aspects of our life. It can be the lineal part of your life, the number of years that you have lived chronologically. It can deal with all of the physical aspects of who you are. You could break it down like this. Your bios life involves, in an average situation, 250,000 hours of sleep, 76,000 meals, and 200,000 trips to the bathroom. That's your bios life. That's how you can break that down. It deals solely with the physical. Now, when the thief comes to kill and destroy and steal from us, he will aim most of his attacks towards the bios life. He's after a a means of crippling you within the physical, and he tries it in all kinds of different ways, all in an attempt to destroy the spiritual. But he only has limited power within you given by God or around you, not even within you, around you, and that's given to him by God. And the majority of the thief or the destroyer's attacks will come in the realm of the bios. If that makes sense, shake your head yes. Now here's the second word in the Greek language that applies to life. This one is a lot more interesting. Here it is. It is the word zoe. Zoe speaks not of the physical, but rather of the spiritual and the eternal. Now the bios is wrapped up within the Zoe life. But the Zoe life is the one that Jesus really cares about. 
When he says, I came that they might have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly, he was speaking about the Zoe life. The Zoe life deals with your past, your present, and your future. It is eternal. Jesus comes to deal with that part of us. We make a huge mistake when we believe that Jesus came caring only about our bios life. He came caring about our Zoe life. Now, I have spent a lot of time this past week talking to Jesus about my bios life. And I've been saying, God, I've made more than 200,000 trips this week to the bathroom trying to get rid of this thing. I can't. And I have pled with God over and over and over and over about it. But in the darkness of the night, I've been reminded repeatedly that what he cares about the most is not my bios life, but my Zoe life. So you can actually write in your Bible, if you're a note taker and you want to take a bold note, you can write right in this, I came that they may have Zoe life and have it abundantly. Eternal life. That's what Jesus is after. And when we renew covenant with him, we're not doing it within the realm of the bios. Rather, we are doing that within the realm of the Zoe life. When we renew covenant with Jesus, with God, our Father, through His Son, Jesus, we're saying that I want my Zoe life to be restored. I want the forgiveness of the past. I want the joy of the present. And I want the hope of the future. I want the Zoe life to matter. The bios is passing away. I want my Zoe life to matter. When we renew covenant and come out of the far country. That's what we're doing. That's what we're after. Don't worry so much about the bios. It's temporal. You worry about the Zoe. In the process of it, you find great restoration because, remember this, the Zoe life does not focus only on your future. It focuses on your past, your present, and your future. The Zoe life encompasses all of those. And that's the one that Jesus cares about. So people then will say after they see that, well, if that's true, and I can really get into a place where I am seeing a renewed Zoe relationship with God through Jesus, how? How do I pull it off? How do I renew the covenant? Well, I'm always happy when they ask. And if you're wondering about that today, I'm happy that you're asking There are at least five stops that I think we have to make in order to experience that type of renewal. Here they are. This is all five of them. We go through crisis, repentance, forgiveness, renewal, and perseverance. All five of those. Along our journey to renewal, these are all going to happen. Every one of them at some level. Now, we're going to pick these apart one by one, and there's going to be some scripture up on the screen. I'm not going to read that scripture for you. You can read it as we scroll through it on the screen. You can write down the references and take them with you if you want to. Trust me that the Word of God speaks to each one of these. So when we are looking to renew covenant with God, it will, 99% of the time, begin in crisis. It will begin in some way, shape, means, or form with God getting our attention. And it will more than likely be somewhat painful. Rock bottom is a painful place to be. When we hit that, we hit it with a big thud. 
So the crisis happens that God might bring us back. I love the way C.S. Lewis says this. He says, pain is God's megaphone. He whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. That's very true. In the midst of a crisis, you can hear God shouting to you as he's trying to pull you out of the far country and bring you home. As he's trying to wake you up that you might come back to yourself or come back to your senses. The crisis will do that. So when you're in the midst of a mess and you're trying to figure out where God is in the middle of it, you trust me in this. He is right beside you with a megaphone in his hand yelling at you saying, pay attention, I'll lead you out of here. Let's get out of the far country and let's go home. And we can have a renewed relationship, a restored relationship. Follow me out of here. That's exactly what God says to us in those moments. But that requires us to deal with that second thing, which is repentance. We have to choose to repent of the things that led us to the far country. Repentance is this really cool thing in Scripture that a lot of people stumble over. Repentance is not just a matter of saying, I've done something, that's who I am, that's how I am made, that's how I'm wired. That might be scratching the surface of confession, but that is not repentance. Repentance looks like this. You are traveling down the wrong path, and when you choose to repent, you are choosing to turn around and go the other direction. That's what it looks like. Repentance is turning around and going the other direction. Anything else is foolishness. It's foolishness. Here's an interesting illustration for you. A couple years ago, Tina and I were in Seattle on our way to Seattle Children's Hospital to visit a family there. Now, we had asked Siri for directions. So had the phone plugged in and we asked Siri to get us there and it didn't seem like we were going the right way. Things just didn't seem right. So I said to Siri, she's plugged into our dash, I said, get directions to Seattle Children's Hospital. And this is exactly what she said to me. I don't know who your children are, and quite frankly, I don't know who you are. That's exactly what my phone said to me. (laughs) Tina and I both were like, what? (laughs) What do we do with that? We think we're on the wrong path, and Siri, the one who's been guiding us, is leaving us on that path. So our choice is pretty simple. Do we keep following this obnoxious voice the wrong way? Or do we turn around and go back to where we know we can find our bearings? We came to ourselves and we turned around to go find our bearings. Bought a map. Didn't care about Siri anymore. Unfolded the map and we followed the right path in. When you repent, you are turning around and going back to where you have your bearings. And you're making the right decisions again. And you're following the right map with no regard for the voices that are leading you the wrong way. That's what it means to repent. Once we have repented, it leads us to a beautiful place if we can handle it. That's the place of forgiveness. Now I want to read this passage for you from the book of Psalms. Listen to this. This is Psalm 103 verses 10 and 11. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. That's God's forgiveness. 
And a lot of us can actually wrestle our way through the whole idea of God forgiving us for the things that we have done to get to the far country, but then we will fall on our face when it comes to forgiving ourselves and believing that anybody else could forgive us. Folks, once you have accepted God's forgiveness, you've accepted the most difficult part of it. Forgive yourself. Seek the forgiveness of other people and get out of the far country. Move out of the pig pen and renew covenant, not only with God, but with others as well. It's simple. Experience the crisis. Go through the repentance that you might see forgiveness. And once you do, then renew the covenant. That's what we were talking about from Joshua chapter 8. You renew the covenant that you might move into a new life. That's all it is. It's a restored life. It's a beautiful life. It's a life of relationship and love and acceptance. Through the renewal, we find that. And that'll even take us into that fifth stop, perseverance. Perseverance happens when we are just living the life. We're doing what we're supposed to do. And the Zoe life is back where it's supposed to be. And we're out of the pig pen. We're not eating slop anymore. We're no longer living at rock bottom. But instead, we're living at the highest places in the palace of the king. Because we are invited there by his son. Renew the covenant. Get back to where you need to be. If you're one of those people that that grew up with the Lord and then you chose to go live in the far country, know that the invitation is there for you to come back. Renew the covenant and come back. Get out of the pig pen. And if you've wondered about whether it's really possible, then trust me on this. It is. You repent of your sin and experience the forgiveness of it. Renew the covenant and live in relationship with God. It's a beautiful place. It's a beautiful place where the robes of the Lord rest on your shoulders and the rings of God are on your fingers and the fatted calf is in front of you and the renewal is there. Live there because Jesus said, I came that you might have Zoe life. Forgiveness from the past. Forgiveness within the present and hope for the future. Five stops along the way and they're all fairly simple. Once you have discovered that Zoe life, that abundant life, there are some other times that you may need to renew the covenant. Those happen when you face new seasons. And new seasons come all the time in life. We talked about those just last week. There are always new seasons ahead of us. And there is great wisdom in renewal before you enter each of those seasons. Where you stop and analyze your relationship with God and you renew the covenant with Him. Joshua taught the Israelites to do that very thing. Go with me to chapter 24. Joshua 24. Long chapter, we're not going to read all of it. Again, we're just going to pull some things off the page. Joshua's leadership is coming to an end. The Israelites have been given their inheritance in the land. They know where they're supposed to live. They've been given their allotment of geography. It's time for them to go there. So before everybody separates and goes their own way, Joshua calls them together. Chapter 24, verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. God called them all together. Joshua said, everybody get here. God has a meeting with us. And they all came. 
He talked about what he had done for them, what God had done for them as he brought them out of captivity through the wilderness, talked about the victories that they had experienced. He even shared some of the the supernatural victories like this one in verse 12. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. That's God saying, I did this for you. I told you. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, God told them that when you come up against the kings of the Amorites, the ones that they were the most terrified of, that you're not even going to have to worry about them. I will beat them with bees. And that's what he did. God beat them with bees. They didn't even have to draw their swords. They never knocked an arrow in those battles. God drove the kings out with hornets, with bees. That's how God did it. And he reminded them of what he had done. That's my protection. And he said, now you're eating the fruit of this land. That's my provision. That's what I've done for you. So Joshua says this to them. Verse 22. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. This is a beautiful picture. You are witnesses. Really what he means when he says you are witnesses on this, he's saying that this is now between you and God. doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. This is between you and God. You are a witness of the covenant relationship that you have with God. This speaks directly to your spiritual integrity. It's between you and the Lord now. You're about to move out of the protection of the community. And when you move out of protection of community, it is going to be you and God standing together and you are the witness to that. That's what he was saying. Then listen to this, verse 24. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was in the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Now you have to remember that right prior to that, in verse 15, Joshua would say this to these people, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, here, why don't you say this with me? If you have your Bibles open, 24, 15, say this with me. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's what Joshua was teaching them. And he said, now you be a witness to what you have declared. You renew your covenant today. And that's what happened from that point forward. They renewed the covenant. They said, this is what we want. When we move into the promised land, we don't want those other gods. We want our God and only our God. And Joshua said, good, good. You'll stand as a witness to that. And a stone will stand as a witness to that. And as you're moving into this new promise, you need to hold on to that covenant. Then listen, verse 28. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance, that they might persevere in the Lord, that they might stay with him. That's what he was teaching. That's the legacy he was giving. The renewal of their covenant made that possible. Does the same for us. 
That was a Zoe covenant. Deals with eternity. You stay with God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There is an interesting thing happening in weddings today. One of the biggest seasons anyone will ever enter in their life outside of relationship with Christ. People are choosing to leave God out of wedding ceremonies. It's kind of heartbreaking. As a preacher, I can tell you it's really heartbreaking. They're choosing not to follow traditional vows anymore. They instead are looking for whatever's popular on the internet or what's been pinned on Pinterest. And they use those as their vows. And one of the statements that they are taking out of weddings today, it's falling like flies in October, are the words, so help me God. When we give vows to follow that up with the words, so help me God, that's not just an exclamation point, and that's not a hollow, empty thing. That is a covenant renewal. So help me God says, I am taking these vows before you, God, before all of my family, before all of my friends. I'm saying this before my wife or my husband, and I am asking, Lord, that you help me. So help me God is a prayer. So help me God is a covenant renewal. Every time you get ready to enter a new season, those words should be on your lips. So help me God. I will honor the Lord in everything that I do in this new season. So help me God. I will honor God with this job no matter what comes my way. So help me God. I will enter into a relationship with other people to honor the Lord. So help me God. You see, that's covenant renewal. That's Zoe renewal. And it works. It works. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you've been living in the far country and you want out. You want to come back. Rock bottom's getting awful sore. You can do that today. Maybe you're facing a new season in your life and you want to pray a so help me God Zoe type prayer. And you want somebody else to join with you. Whichever case it might be, we want to give you an invitation to have other people join you in what you're facing. If it's coming out of the far country, you're going to need somebody to help. If it is in a covenant renewal for a new season, having somebody that stands as a witness with you is a great thing. It's accountability. So we're going to offer an invitation for you to find the help that you need, the support you need, the accountability you need, the encouragement that you need. All you're going to have to do as we're singing is go over to this door and tell Deanie you want to talk with somebody. If you want to talk with an elder, you tell him, I want to talk with an elder. If you want to pray with somebody, you tell him, I want to pray with somebody. Whatever it is, you share what you need and let God respond. But you renew the covenant that you might find Zoe life.